Welcome back to Mud Between Your Toes Year Ender 2020. My year enders include the highlights from all the past episodes from season two. In today's episode, you can listen to segments from my interviews with Alan Savory, Faye Halstead, Louisa Trigger, and Jonathan Simmons. So sit back and enjoy. Alan Savory is a man whose career in politics, agriculture, and conservation has spanned some 60 years. Throughout his career, he has arguably been both revered and reviled in equal measures. He's the co-founder of the Savory Institute and is one of the world's leading voices in land degradation or desertification of the world's grasslands. He lives quite literally off the grid in a series of mud huts in Victoria Falls with his wife and business partner, Jody Butterfield. So Alan Savory, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hi, Peter. Uh, before we talk about your extraordinary ecology and conservation work, perhaps we can talk briefly about your early political career. I think it's safe to say, Mr. Savory, you were a bit of a firebrand. I mean, you resigned from the Rhodesian Front in protest over its racist policies and the handling of the war. And then in 1973, you famously stated if I had been born a black Rhodesian instead of a white Rhodesian, I would be your greatest terrorist. Obviously, with hindsight, it's a pity no one listened, because um, the reaction to the statement led to you being ousted from the, the party, didn't it? Well, it's it, like all these things, Peter, it's more complicated than that. I, I penetrated the Rhodesian front. I was a, you could almost call me an angry young army officer, seeing the stupidity that was going to lose us the country and produce the results we have today, you know, of going to military defeat over just racism. And um, so I talked to Sir Roy Valensky and Pat Bashford, others who wanted me to come into politics. And I said, no, uh, Smith has destroyed all of you guys. And he's, you know, going to destroy the country. I'm going to penetrate his party. And I did. I joined the Rhodesian Front. Uh, being totally opposed to them and within a month I was in Parliament and um, and then I worked from within to see if I could produce change but I, I found because uh, it was believed by many of us that that Smith was not the hothead there were other hotheads but I learned that Smith was the hothead and um, when it was rumored that I was going to be the next cabinet appointment I didn't want to go any further with my deception. Now, then, then I at one of our caucus meetings, I told Smith and his entire cabinet that I had no confidence in them and would be crossing the floor. And so I crossed the floor and reformed completely the old Rhodesia party that had been led by uh, Roy Valensky, who had become a friend by then. And, um, and eventually it was actually my own party when we had into the national unifying force. It was actually my own party that got me out of parliament and not Smith. But, um, and then shortly after that, I, I was into exile. 
But that statement you said, yes, I made it at a speech at Norton, and I said I want my fellow white religions to think clearly why I would say this. And yes, I said if I'd been born a black religion, I would be your most, you know, aggressive terrorist, whatever. And then the next day, of course, there were big uh, billboards in Harare, try savory for treason and all this nonsense. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, so going forward a bit, Alan, obviously it's a very difficult subject, but you bring it up yourself. Um, all of us who have lived in sub-Saharan Africa have seen the destruction of the indigenous forests by herds of elephant. It's clearly a problem, but you were largely instrumental in the early days in the culling of large numbers of elephants based on the idea that overpopulation was destroying their habitat. Um, th this was a terrible mistake on your behalf, wasn't it? Well, it, it was a mistake on the behalf of all scientists because I was just reflecting the scientific view that's still there today. In other words, if there's damage to land where animals are involved, it's always due to too many animals. That's been a belief for thousands of years. You can go back into ancient texts and see them blaming the nomads for calling, causing the desert with their too many sheep, etc. That's taught in every university in the world today. And uh, I was merely reflecting that uh, when we saw the amount of elephant damage in the Luangwa, the Zambezi, etc. And so I did what all scientists do. And we very easily prove what we believe. And so I proved there were too many elephants and then that was very, very controversial so, and politically dynamite. So we had my work checked out and Ray Smithers, uh, Oliver West, various uh, top scientists we had here uh, were in a committee under Ray. They investigated all my work. They agreed with me and we were all wrong. There weren't too many elephants and we, sh you know, the government went ahead, not me, but the government went ahead and shot over 40,000 elephants and it got worse and just this last week I've been dealing with another Zimbabwean Ron Thompson who was involved in that culling and he's now advocating that Botswana should shoot 100,000 elephants that's just crazy it got worse when we shot 40,000 and here are people who didn't learn at all this is why you have since dedicated your life to solving the problem of this overgrazing and the degradation of our savannas and grasslands. I realized it was not just wildlife, it was human habitat. And so I began to focus on that because poor land means poor people, social upheaval, unrest, violence, war. It's, it's a simple pattern. You have to manage the culture of the people the social issues, the environmental, and the economic issues as one. They cannot be managed separately. And so we discovered that from the work here, and then that's when the holistic framework developed, and we got that trial and error again, a lot of mistakes and errors, but by 1984, approximately, we had that working and we were training thousands of people, and literally that has been successful ever since, as long as people do it. 
Um, Ellen, your TED talk in 2013, um, How to Green the Desert and Reverse Climate Change, has attracted over 7 million views, and it's not too surprising. I've watched it twice, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. But you say the number one enemy is the cow, but the number one tool that can save mankind is the cow. Yeah, you know, people are blaming methane, um, you know, for cattle, but methane's there. And if you don't have cattle and just termites eat the grass, you've still got methane. You know, it's, uh, this is, these are red herrings. Let's assume for a moment that every human became vegan. We never eat meat again. We, um, let's assume that the grasslands of the world can absorb absolutely no carbon at all. And let's assume that cattle and livestock put out 20 times the methane that they do. Now, those are all untrue things, but if you assume those as truths, my question to all the scientists in the world, including every Nobel laureate, would be now what are you going to do about global desertification and climate change? Wow. There, it's, there's it's, nothing you can do because only livestock can enable us to address desertification on about two-thirds of the world's land. So, so the movement and the bunching of herds of animals um, you, you think is the answer? First, it's not the answer. You said it's the answer. No, it's, that's what has to be done on about two-thirds of the world's land, all right? It, but not in humid environments. If you take the tropical forests of Brazil, there shouldn't be cattle in them. They, they wouldn't be there if people were managing holistically. That would be illegal. It's so damaging. So where it's appropriate and the decisions are made holistically, socially, environmentally, economically, and cattle are or sheep or goats or camels, some animal is essential to address desertification, for example, then the the dilemma we faced here in Zimbabwe in the 1960s when I realized that was how the hell to do it. Lo and behold, this is what livestock do. They trample and break bare surfaces. They trample litter to the ground to cover the soil and they provide dung and urine. So we use the livestock to do that in the planning process. Now, why do livestock cause damage? They cause damage because they're too long on the land, not because of their numbers. And once we discovered that, we could just say, okay, we've got to concentrate the animals to get the dung, the urine, the trampling, but we've got to keep moving them so that they never overgraze or overbrowse plants. So plants have got to be exposed to the animals for one, two, three days, not much more than that in the growing season. And now we don't bring those animals back onto those plants until those plants have recovered. So those principles, I've just said them to you and you've got them. There's, there's nothing more to it. All you have to do now is work out how do you do that on ranches and farms and pastoralists where you've got the culture, the society, the economy, all of these things to be brought into it. And so that just becomes a planning, good planning process. Um, so what comes now? Do you feel positive about the future of our, of our planet? When you ask about the future, 
one of the things that gives me most hope is that I read a survey a while back which said that the young generation uh, coming up now, that a higher percentage of them want to live a truly meaningful life than ever before. Previous generations apparently were more interested in money, power, position, etc. Um, and I'm really heartened if, if young people want to live a truly meaningful life, we might see a chance, a change. Um, you know, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, the young people, they, they are so right to, to protest and demand change. But what change are they demanding? More of the same? Because unless there is a serious attempt to address the cause of climate change, we're offering the young people no hope. That was the wonderful Alan Savory, who was talking to me from his home in Victoria Falls back in June about conservation and how we can save the planet. In episode six, I was delighted to interview the talented Faye Halstead of Ardmore Design. The Ardmore Studio was founded in 1985 by Zimbabwean-born ceramic artist Faye Halstead. Faye lives on Ardmore Farm at the foothills of the Drakensberg Mountains in KwaZulu-Natal with a team of artisans and apprentices. Faye Halstead, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you so much, Peter, for inviting me to join you. Anyway, Faye, I've never seen work like this before. I'm not saying that lightly. Where did you learn the trade and how did you get started? Well, funnily enough, Peter, I, um, after uh, matriculating, I came to study fine art in South Africa. There was no fine art universities and places to study there. And I started as a painting major. I actually didn't work in ceramics at all. But I wanted to make three-dimensional sculptures, so I used the clay and the paint to produce wall paintings. And that's how I started in ceramics. And I suppose it's the painterly that I love that gives Ardmore its distinct style. And, um, yeah, where do we go from there? The love of fauna and flora, the African bush is our starting point. The love of color. Artists like Rousseau, Henri Rousseau, Chagall, um, works by Gauguin, Matisse, patterns, colors, those are the things that I love. And, um, you know, the Zulu culture is a culture of craft and making art, baskets, and not really art for art's sake. So the tradition of the ukamba making, pot making, and then the hood boys, sculpting little clay oxen by the river, started to become um, something that we developed after losing my job lecturing um, ceramics at Durban Tech. And uh, we put it all together. We put the love of color, Zulu design. It's nothing really that I came up with. It was really a collaboration of using Zulu culture with um, modern technology. There's something about your work that reminds me of the winner of the Turner Prize, the brilliant ceramic artist, Grayson Perry. 
I mean, well, you're not the first person to have likened our work to Grace and Terry, and that's a great honor. But uh, let's put it this way. There's a lot of uh, little bits of African nonsenses that are a little close to nature. You know, and in nature, we see a lot of um, naughtinesses. So I think that humor, that quirk is, is what really is out there on Ardmore. And because we're African, I, I don't stop it. it. For me, it's it's what we see every day. I mean, baboons are doing it as they walk past and um, teeth are bared and impala get eaten. And, you know, that's sexuality or what can we say? Sensuality is a great word. For me, it's it's divine, you know, these sensuous leopards rubbing their bollocks against luscious plants and foliage. And, you know, it's that eroticism that I think is fun. I I mean, yes, absolutely. You have to look twice at your work and say, what the hell's going on there? I mean, you've covered many, many (laughs) topics over the years. I mean, you've obviously, being Southern African, you've covered HIV AIDS, you cover everyday life in rural Africa, but most recognizable for me are the large, intricate pieces depicting African or Zulu mythology. There's a strong link isn't there, to humans and their animistic totems. Completely correct, um, Peter. You know, we, whenever we use an animal, it, it signifies a symbol. You know, crocodiles are ancient wisdom, chameleons are adaptations. So nothing is just pretty animals and plants running around. Every piece has got its meaning. I see that the pieces, particularly the big ones, um, are a collaboration between sculptor, painter, and I suppose kiln operator. Um, tell me oh, about yes. yeah, yeah. Tell me about some of your stars, Faye. Well, you're quite correct. It's a beautiful collaboration with this incredible trust. It's not a Western thing to do. So what we have when we do want um, thrown works, we have two master throwers. Lovemore Satoli and George Magnatella. And then we have sculptors. So the men mainly are the sculpting uh, creative people. We have only one woman um, sculptor, which is very interesting. And then women tend to do the decorating. So once the work is dry and um, finished, it goes into the kiln. So we have operators, kiln operators, that are very big integral. That's really the the hub or the center, uh, the belly button of Ardmore. And then from where there, the pieces get selected and distributed to our star uh, painters, the bigger works, the more masterworks or art pieces go to hierarchy of better sculptors, better painters. So that gives an incentive for younger artists to aspire to the best. And then the younger artists grow. And we don't uh, do it on years. Um, of working with Ardmore, we do it on sheer talent. So if a young artist comes in and shows talent, they can move up the ranks quickly. We, we liken it to a soccer team. If you, if you don't come for practice, you know, your, your place in the team gets filled quickly. And then we offer this uh, service to um, collectors for us to restore their work as well if a little ear gets lost. So we don't look at this as... Um, a teapot with a broken handle or chip china needs to be thrown away. We look at it as extra love, extra care, a little bit like the Japanese 
putting gold through the cracks of the plate. I think, Faye, for the sake of people not able to view your pieces as we speak, uh, and this is such an exciting visual thing, let me attempt the impossible and describe a few masterpieces, and you can tell us the inspiration and something about the artist behind the piece. The elephant, the Sabi elephant dance. I mean, what a whimsical name that is. Now, I'm going to try and explain this one as well. Again, I'm not quite sure what this is, other than being a centerpiece in a in a table or in a hallway. It's these extraordinary, these two elephants on their back legs dancing. Um, the, the, the main body of the elephants are painted with, I think, their African um, plants that look like cactuses or aloes. The ears of the elephant, on the other hand, are almost like the, the, the underside of an octopus. They, and they, they look so tactile and their, their trunks go up and they intertwine. And then right at the top, as if that's not enough, you've got two little monkeys sitting there. <laughs> uh, this is a divine piece. And it was quite an interesting uh, way of working this, uh, this year. Normally, our, our textiles are inspired from the ceramics. And we came up with a new um, fabric collection called the Sabi Collection, which features these dancing elephants with these beautiful designs in it. And we re-inspired the artist to make three-dimensional work from the fabric designs. So this piece was um, inspired by the Sabi Collection, where all those delicious plants uh, that are painted all over the elephants uh, come out the, the fabric collection. And um, a man called Samantha in Chan and Charlie uh, sculpted the piece they hollowed out, and Siabonga Mabasa painted it with all these lovely colors. And it is, it is a sculpture in its own right. It's very lyrical, and the two little monkeys just add that little bit of nonsense. Um, let's go, let's go, go, go get away from the elephants. There's another one called, again, a beautiful name, the Cheetah King Plum Garden. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so where do you start with this? You've got cheetahs. And again, I've got to tell people, these are three-dimensional. This is not painted, just painted onto a piece of, onto a vase. You've got these almost like flesh-eating plants. Uh, they look like uh, those huge, big, stinky flesh-eating plants. Um, and then you've got these cheetahs going around in a circle. And then you've got more of the plants and more cactuses. And then at the top, you've got these cheetahs that are sort of uh, playfully gamboling, I suppose, if that's the right word, at the top. It's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing piece. I totally agree with you. It was one of my favorites that we exhibited in Cape Town in um, February, again inspired by the plum colors of the Sabi collection. And it's sculpted um, by Tabo Mbele, the Sutu sculptor again, and he is known for creating this energy and movement in his works. You can hear the cheetahs snarling. You can hear monkeys chirp. He's just got this amazing ability to turn clay into life. And you can hear noises. I always say about his work, I can hear the bush come alive. Um, like you also mentioned these um, 
human or no, insect-eating plants, these delicious monster-type plants. I don't know if you remember in Bulaway those mother-in-law tongues, they were yes. called, these Absolutely, wonderful succulents. Yes. I couldn't stand them, actually, <laughs> the mother-in-law's tongues. No, I know. <laughs> but, you know, it's things like that that hark back to your childhood memories. And they, they sort of sit deep in your psyche. So as we work on designs, a lot from childhood starts popping out. But um, what was a little bit new for Ardmore were those colors. And with the new um, design work that has grown out of Ardmore with my daughters, who are the designers, colors have got very sophisticated. And the artists through osmosis, the painters, are loving working with more limited um, colors rather than doing a fruit salad of red, yellow, blue, and pink, and all. So there's a sort of a development of sophistication coming out into our work. And actually, finally, all three of those works that you just, we've just spoken about have just been sold to a very collector in, in America. Oh, so how, how wonderful. you and she have got the same taste. <laughs> well, it's absolutely incredible. And it's, it's a big piece again, 60 centimeters high. I mean, I wish people could just see what we're looking at. There's another beautiful, whimsical piece, the Leopard Riders. And I think this is part of a whole collection of different riders. And again, you've got this leopard with its tail curled. And it's, it's been ridden by two people in traditional dress. I think they're Zulus, judging from her headdress. And uh, he's, holding, he's holding an umbrella. I don't know what the umbrella is made from. I think it might be either a palm tree or uh, ostrich feathers. I'm not quite sure. I mean, it's just a fun, fun piece. Uh, I'll tell you quickly a little story about these riders or traveler series that actually was an idea of mine inspired by an American woman who visited um, Egypt. And around her house, she had painted these leopards and tigers and zebras with parasoled little people. And we, were, we really didn't know if we were going to make it through the 2008 recession. And I came back from my trip to America and I said it to a Zimbabwean artist called Alex Sabanda, the idea, and also Sutu artist Bennett Sondo, who actually made this beautiful leopard. And it saved Ardmore. People just love the fantasy, the story of travel, the romance. And um, anyway, uh, this is a large, large leopard, beautifully painted. And the little figure, I think, is holding a little piece of Ardmore. So they actually use these um, figures riding these animals as a storytelling to many sub subject matters. And obviously, they're using the people to identify themselves, earning money, making pots, and traveling through the world. As I said, I think you've got a slightly mad um, way of seeing life, really. Um, I'm going to reiterate the links where people can view or even buy work. The, the first link, www.ardmore-design.com. Uh, the second one is ardmoreceramics.co.za. And I really, 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 really think people should go and check this stuff out. It's absolutely incredible. 
Later in the series, in episode 7, I chatted to writer Louisa Trieger. Hello again. My guest speaker today is Louisa Trieger. Louisa was a classical violinist until she turned her hand to literature. Her debut novel, The Lodger, was widely acclaimed and she followed it up with The Dragon Lady, based on the life of Lady Virginia Courtauld, no stranger to Zimbabweans who grew up in the Eastern Highlands. The book's title comes from a nickname referencing the snake tattoo that wound up one of Lady Courtauld's legs. Louisa Trigger, welcome to Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, as mentioned, The Dragon Lady wasn't your first book. That was The Lodger. Perhaps we can get to that and your new book in a minute. But first, I'd like to talk about The Dragon Lady. It's based on the life of Lady Virginia or Ginny Courtauld. Can you tell us about this fascinating woman and what drew you to write about her? Well, Virginia or Ginny Courtauld was beautiful and rebellious and she had a scandalous past and the tattoo of a snake, which you just mentioned, running the length of one leg. After a brief marriage to an Italian count, she wed Stephen Courtauld, a war hero mountaineer, orchid collector and heir to a textile fortune. I think what drew me to her was that she was such a, a rule breaker and this was in an era when women were supposed to be, you know, virtuous and submissive. But Ginny was, you know, full of life and broke all the rules. And of course, it was that tattoo that drew me to her. I've seen photos of it, and I promise you it would stop traffic now. So what it must have seemed like in, you know, the 1920s, goodness knows. I mean, what a rebel. Exactly. And, and um, rumour had it that, you know, it went all the way up her leg and only her husband's knew where it ended. <laughs> <laughs> so your book uh, begins with her life in Italy to a very unhappy marriage, or perhaps it wasn't so much the marriage, it was the family she married into. And then her marriage to the Courtaulds in England. And then finally to her home, La Rochelle, in the Eastern Highlands of Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia. Um, it's quite a strange choice of country for them to go and live in, by all accounts, because at the time, all the aristocracy were moving to, to the White Highlands of Kenya. There was a joke that uh, the, the officers used to go to Kenya and the sergeants used to come to Rhodesia. <laughs> well, the Courtaulds were deeply non-conformist. They never did what was expected of them. And I think they wanted to leave Europe, partly because Ginny was too scandalous to ever be really accepted by English society. And I think also after the Second World War, you know, when there was so much destruction and waste, particularly on the, on the European continent, they wanted a fresh start. And they wanted somewhere that they felt was close to nature and uncreated. And they were very attracted by the climate. Uh, Ginny loved hot weather. Stephen didn't like 
weather that was too hot. So the Eastern Highlands of Rhodesia seemed to offer the perfect solution. And then there was the wonderfully fertile soil. Uh, Stephen was a keen botanist and a horticulturalist. And as you know, you can grow anything in that soil. The irony of it was they went there and found out that Rhodesia had its own set of problems. Oh, absolutely. Um, and also, I think he was slightly shell-shocked, wasn't he, from the war. So he had PTSD, I suppose. So, and she was definitely the strong force in the relationship. Uh, yeah, well, it was a marriage of opposites. Because, yes, you're quite right. I think he did have PTSD. And she was such a life force, really. I think she brought him to life after the horrors of the war. Uh, but Louisa, she, she met Stephen in around 1919 in Italy, um, yes. and it kind of was love at first sight, wasn't it? Yes. And, and he was the youngest brother of Samuel, who is the founder of the Courtauld Institute of Art at Somerset House, um, which has the greatest collection of Impressionists in the world. Uh, yes, that's right. So. The brothers were heirs to a textile fortune. That's how Samuel could afford those beautiful paintings. And they were both collectors. Samuel, as you said, loved Impressionist art. And they were both deeply philanthropic. And they, you know, they thought that charity and, and public service was a duty, really. And they thought that art should be accessible to all people. So Samuel donated that magnificent collection to the British nation. And Stephen was instrumental in founding the National Gallery of Zimbabwe. And he also donated a lot of art to the National Gallery. Apparently, he donated a Monet or two, which seemed to have gone missing. I, I believe you tried to find them. So there's such a story behind that, you know, the hidden art of Zimbabwe. I did try to find them. I wasn't very successful. Um, the gallery released a limited list of works to me, including um, Rembrandt's Durer's and a Renoir, but they, they wouldn't release the full list of works. And apparently Stephen Courtauld donated 93 works of art to the National Gallery. So that's, you know, a, a huge and very valuable donation. And of course, my worry is that, you know, maybe, maybe Mugabe helped himself to it. Well, I always think that the Courtauld's must have seemed like aliens from another planet, you know, when they landed in the middle of the Eastern Highlands and built this magnificent house, La Rochelle, and filled it with the greatest art and comforts that money could buy and you know you can imagine the farmers and their wives reaction but also the Courtaulds were very liberal and you know believed in racial equality and worked a lot to that end so I think you know the farmers felt their way of life was quite threatened by that. I mean, is it true that they had something like 12 turners in their sitting room at La Rochelle? It was their dining room, and yes. 
incredibly exciting. Tell us about La Rochelle. What, was, what were the gardens like and what's the architecture like? Well, the architecture, the design is based on um, a chateau, a French chateau that belonged to Stephen's ancestors. Uh, it was meant to be a, a twin tower building, like a long, low building with two towers. But apparently the Courtauld's only got planning permission for one tower. So it's got one tall tower. It's a long, low, white building. And, you know, it, it, although the treasures are stripped out, it's pretty well as it was when the Courtauld's were in residence. So that, that is incredible. And the gardens are famous and absolutely beautiful. They're like Zimbabwe's equivalent to Kirstenbosch, the famous South African botanical gardens. It was Stephen's boast that a tree from every country in the world grew in that garden. Uh, he used to pour over catalogues and order seeds and seedlings. And I mean, it's incredible. And it's been restored and it's beautifully maintained. So, you know, anyone who is in that part of the world, that's well worth a visit as well. And, and your work in general always champions women and, and feminism, uh, very much like Doris Lessing, I feel. Well, Doris Lessing is one of my favorite, favorite writers and was a huge influence on me. So thank you for the comparison. I'm, you know, very flattered and I'll take it gladly. I, I stumble on the subjects of my books by accident, but the more I write, the more it seems that a pattern's emerging. I'm drawn to strong women who didn't conform and who struggled to find their place in the world. Let's yeah. let's discuss your first book, The Lodger. You obviously, again, as I said, like to play with the relationship between real people and fiction. And this book is no different. Can you tell us about the H.G. Wells connection and your protagonist? Of course. Well, Dorothy Richardson was a British modernist writer who lived in 20, early 20th century London. And she was actually as much of a rule breaker as Virginia Courtauld, both in the way she wrote and in the way she lived her life. She smashed just about every boundary and, and taboo. She wrote Stream of Consciousness before anyone else in England, before Virginia Woolf or... Um, James Joyce. And she was also a rule breaker in the way she lived her life. Um, she earned her living at first as a dental assistant and, and then as a writer. So, you know, she, she wasn't kind of part of that patriarchal family structure. She had an affair with H.G. Wells, who was the husband of her oldest school friend. And she also discovered that she was um, bisexual in, in an era when homosexuality was illegal. So she, she was a rule breaker in, in every possible way. And my um, novel covers the period of her affair with H.G. Wells and her sexual awakening and how she became a writer. So I guess it's really a novel about awakenings. That was the author Louisa Trieger 
talking to me about her books, The Dragon Lady and The Lodger. And she has a new book coming out very soon. I'll keep you posted. If you want to find out more about Louisa Trigger, you can go onto her website, www.luisatrigger.com. In episode 8, I spoke to animator Jonathan Simmons from his home in Mauritius. In 2011, HBO launched the TV series Game of Thrones. It simply took the world of television by storm. The show concluded in May 2019 after a spellbinding, sexy, brutal, and fabulous eight seasons of pure, nail-biting fantasy. Zimbabwean-raised Jonathan Simmons was the senior animator for series five, six, and seven, and is speaking to me from his home in Mauritius. Jonathan Simmons, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be on your show. Uh, look, we'll get to Game of Thrones a little later. Um, you're the co-founder of Sephoria VFX, based in Mauritius. Tell us a little bit about Sephoria. What kind of work do you do? Uh, we do a whole bunch of things. We work predominantly in visual effects for films. So we don't actually produce a film necessarily, but we would um, we would do all the visual effects. So if a boat needed to be placed on a, on the ocean, we would uh, just do that. Or a set extensions, we can turn a modern day skyscraper into an old building. Um, those sort of things that we do, we can enhance the footage. We we edit it, we storyboard it. And um, yeah, we, we basically it depends on the project. If we have a client that wants to do something um, different, then we work with the client and try to realize their vision. So it's, basic, it's a ba basically the whole whack. You do pre-production, on-set visuals, post-production and final output. You've got quite a fabulous CV, haven't you? I mean, you've worked on a number of projects, including James Cameron's wonderful Avatar, Troll Hunter, Where the Wild Things Are, and of course, the biggie, Game of Thrones. I mean, Jonathan, but Jonathan, your life has been marred by very real tragedy, and yet you said that this helped mold you as a person, as a storyteller, as an animator. In fact, in your TEDx talk, you said it's all about storytelling. Um, can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, well, the tragedy in my life, I think, is, is just, there's a lot of people that have tragedy, you know. It, I'm, I'm, there's a lot of people that have worse tragedies than I do. But I just, I chose to use them as a sort of means to focus on on my on my work my work became a distraction and in animation the animator itself is like an actor behind a computer so that the animator would work in a he'd maybe animate a, a dog or a cat or something but his personality would go into that character if you can if you're following me right there absolutely so so when i was working on all these characters troll hunter and avatar and um, Game of Thrones, I, I just 100% put my attention into the character and that helped me escape through the tragedies 
um, one by one. After my after my brother passed away, it was it was really it really hit hard. And then when my sister sister passed away uh, in 2018, um, it was it, 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 that's when I could actually just mold mold myself into the dragon and escape day to day. And and uh, yeah, as I mentioned in my TED talk, he helped me he helped me escape. You know, I mean, your your so your mum died when you're five years old. Your sis, your brother drowned, didn't he? And then your sister died of leukemia halfway through the production of Game of Thrones. Yes, yes. My first mother died when I was five, and then my second, my stepmother, my aunt, uh, she was died in two thousand and four, and then my brother in two thousand five, and Karen last uh, in two thousand eighteen during Game of Thrones. Yeah. But you did reconnect with your biological father when you moved to the UK, didn't you? Yes, I did. And he's now living uh, with my sister in my biological sister in Norway. So she's looking after him over there. I think when you become good at something, if you focus on one thing and you and you're passionate about it, the inspiration is all around you. I think with animation, for me and um, especially when I was when I would go to work. On the underground instead of reading a newspaper i'd watch i'd watch human behavior i'd watch how long it takes for them to blink how long which step they which foot they use to get off the train um you know they're shifting in their body weight skinny people large people young kids whatever it was and the 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 laws of animation helped me to create a timing in my mind and then my reference was everywhere the pigeons landing i watch how they move and um that that sort of helps me even today i still i'm still learning and i still invest in um, my my skill just because i don't know which character is going to come around the corner that i'll have to animate so mm-hmm. and, and, and investing in yourself is very important you said in your ted talk i decided to invest in myself and in my mind and it was the the best investment i've ever made yes i uh, I completely, I totally believe that we never stop learning. We even, you know, before my grandfather uh, passed away uh, last year, I think, or the year before, I was at his old age home and um, I ended up, I was showing him the dragon that I had created, my own personal dragon, and I was showing him this and he was asking questions about how, how does it move? How do you move sort of this sort of creature you have no reference of? And I would explain it to him and he would drift in and out of consciousness. But even at the end, I was still explaining to him how this works. And I think that investing in your mind as you grow through life is so, so valuable. And sharing, sharing ideas, sharing knowledge about how to tie your shoelaces or how to bake a cake, whatever it is, as long as you learn from each other and, and from books and online, uh, you you empower your mind and you, you develop a sense of sort of security about yourself. So when you walk into a room, you walk into the room knowing that you can handle any kind of question that is thrown at you and it makes you feel a little, you elevate yourself. And I think that's important to remain successful and believe in your, 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 your passion and your, your drive to, to reach your goals at the end of the day. Indeed. Now, drum roll.
let's get to the Game of Thrones. You were instrumental, largely you and a team, but you were instrumental in the creation of all three dragons. But the, the one we all fell in love with was Drogon, possibly the most famous dragon ever. Larger and more aggressive than his siblings. He, he, he also has a personality. Um, and of course, he was also the personal mount of Daenerys. Although Drogon is meaner, nastier. He's the one dragon everyone seemed to emotionally connect with, I suppose. That's partly owing to Amelia Clarke's relationship with the dragon. But also, I expect, largely, that's because of you. So tell us how that happens. Well, it's, I don't want to take all the glory for it. Of course, there were a lot of animators that worked on the dragon. Um, but I, I focused entirely on, on, um, on Drogon's behavior. I think when he... It's quite difficult because you've got a reptile that in some ways should never be human. It should never have a human uh, connection. You shouldn't look at him and he frowns his eyebrows up when he's sad, you know, or the only thing that, that we really could do is to keep him evil and mysterious. I think um, the dragon, you know, for example, how long it would take for him to blink. If he blinks quickly, then it shows that he's nervous. If he blinks, blinks very, very slowly, it shows that he's sort of too calm and relaxed. So his blink, the timing of the blink going down in three frames and up in, in two, two to five frames and holding on the blink for four or five frames would make the perfect um, decision of how, what he's thinking of. So I suppose that... That is what I specialized in, and, and thank you for the comments. But um, a lot of other animators worked on it as well. And uh, Drogon's, Drogon's, when you look at him, this, the power of him is actually to not connect with him. You don't know what he's going to do. And only Khaleesi being there can con control him. So that's, uh, that, I think that was achieved very well towards the end, especially after Khaleesi's death, there was a, a very, actually I was animating uh, Khaleesi's death and Drogon, um, that sequence. And that was during the time of Karen's, um, my sister's uh, leukemia. And then she it took 18 days and she was, she was gone. So it was really hard to come back and watch the, and animate this dragon picking up um, uh, Daenerys that, that I had been working with for five years, you know, so picking up this dead corpse and flying off with it into the distance. So that was a very ironic yet um, powerful thing for me to focus on at the time. So, I mean, that series finale was viewed by 19.3 million people across HBO's platforms and a hell of a lot more illegally downloaded, I might add. Um, <laughs> and that last episode possibly had the best battle scene ever filmed. Um, were you still with the series when that was done? And, and, and actually, how did you actually feel about the death of Drogon? Because emotionally, you've obviously put a lot into these dragons and you've seen these dragons, I know this is ridiculous, I know, I know, but you've seen these dragons hatch from an egg 
over the series and grow to what they become. And then you have to kill the thing off. Yeah, sure. But it wasn't the death of Drogon, remember? It was the death of uh, Rhaegal, I think it was. Oh. Viser- I think it was Viserion. Um, that, that was hard. It was hard. We didn't actually work. Uh, the company Pixamondo didn't work on that sequence that was done by another company. And it was uh, a flying sequence. So dragon, the dragon gets killed in the air and falls to the ground. It's pretty straightforward brief, but I think the animation that I saw was fantastic. And it was hard to know. I mean, of course, I knew what was going to happen quite a while before. Even my team, some of them didn't know what was going to happen. And I was sworn to secrecy, but um, watching, watching it and seeing it and knowing that you'll never work with that character ever again is quite a, it's quite a thing. It's like someone coming where you come out of your apartment, you go downstairs and your bicycle's gone and you know that you'll never see it again. So it's this loss, uh, which was, was hard to deal with, but of course, um, you know, you sort of man up and, and carry it, on, I it, suppose. I mean, it's, it's quite a triumph actually. And yeah. also the, and the way you've managed to get this huge, heavy beast to be able to land yeah. on the turret of a castle. It, yeah. it, it's so real. You can feel the weight of it, but you can also feel the way it, it balances itself as it, you know, stands on the, on the turret. It's pretty bloody amazing, I have to say. Yeah, we had to, we had to, the anatomy of him was referenced from eagles and birds and bats. And we got chicken wings and we bought them in the supermarket and we saw how the the muscles would move underneath the wings. And we put the dragon in wind tunnels to make sure that the the length of the wing could fly, could keep him uh, in lift if he's gliding. And lots of things that went into every single detail, every single scale on his body is different. Um, his head is a little bit offset, so it's not symmetrical. And uh, the weight of him was super, super important. And as he got older, he became heavier. So we, every season we had to rebuild him from scratch again. New rig, new model, new texture. Discuss where he's grown. Has his horn grown or his eyes bigger? And lots of different versions would come out until the ones that, that the public would see. So there was a lot of experimentation. But anatomic, anatomically speaking, he, he's the most perfect um, evolved um, dimensioned uh, dragon to carry and support that weight. And he, he, has, he has his wings to support that actor's arms. Uh, yeah, so switching from, switching from landing, so if he's walking and then he, he goes into the air and flies, that, that's the most difficult thing to do as an animator, to take something that's so heavy and make it weightless. And... Uh, elegant in the air because he had to fly with such elegance but despite your family loss you have the most amazing positivity jonathan uh, you, you were talking earlier about impressions when i was 15 funnily enough in the seychelles um, a lady told me to always make an impression it doesn't matter if it's a good impression or a bad impression just bloody will make an impression so I was really delighted to hear you mentioned uh, the whole thing about making an impression earlier mm. on. Yeah. Do you know, I think I was talking about this the other day. Actually, in, in Mauritius at the moment, they're filming a little TV series on YouTube about um, me coming to the island and exploring, exploring the island and calling it my new home. You know, because we've lost, I've traveled the world, I've lived everywhere. 
and I didn't have a place to call home. So now I'm here, I've set up my company and I'm 100% behind the company. But, I, you know, I suppose leaving an impression is something that because I've, I've lost, you know, my, I've, I've lost my brother, I never got to, to say the things I wanted to say to him and my sister and my mom and my other mother and my grandfather. The, the most important thing that I think that I can leave behind is to leave a legacy, to leave something that people will remember you by or to leave an impression or an imprint on someone. I love teaching. I love giving advice to people. People stand there and ask me, John, how are you so humble? How do you manage to uh, stay positive? And I think that that someone asking me for my advice, um, I, that's the impression that I leave. That's my legacy. I think that I, of course, we're setting up an academy here um, to teach, to teach Africa how to make films and creatures and things. But uh, leaving that impression and leaving a legacy behind, I think that's something that is so imprinted in me right now. Um, so. Can I just say that if my listeners want to know more about you and your team, they can go to sof-oria.com, S-O-P-H-O-R-I-A.com. And yes. you can find out a lot more about what you do and what your academy is all about and uh, the work that you've done in the past. But that's where we can find anything about us. You can contact us. We have job opportunities. We have representation opportunities. And we're setting up the academy online and locally. So that will be a visual effects course doing all kinds of things um, from production, storyboarding, all the way through to filmmaking and being in front of the camera as well, acting classes. So it's going to be huge and it's not just going to focus on animation. And hopefully that, that it's not going to be as, as expensive as the first world courses. So that's what I'm trying to get uh, local, the local African um, uh, the, you know, the third world to be educated in film production because they have so many stories that they need to tell. So many stories that are, are lying in graveyards and they, they should have been told. So these stories need, need a, need a, need a, need a, need a pilot, need someone to fly to take them. So that's what I'm going to provide the vehicle for them. So very exciting and um, lucky you. for, lucky for Mauritius to have you. Jonathan Simmons, we're actually out of time. Thank, Thank you, you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.